David. Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. It's going to be in verses 1 to 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. From around his uh, beginning of his uh, uh, life, around 1922, or beginning of his reign, until his death in 1953, a man rose to power in the Soviet Union who was so evil, he was responsible for the death of as many as 60 million people or more. There is no way to describe the tyrannical rule of Joseph Stalin by any more than saying that it was pure, unadulterated evil. Now, a lot of his accomplishments, so to speak, are lost in the person of Adolf Hitler in the middle of the World War II. But just to give you an idea, in case you've forgotten or to remind you how evil this man was, one writer says this, the Holodomor was the intentional starvation of the Ukrainian people. Stalin killed as many as 7.5 million Ukrainians. Although the Ukraine is considered the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, where the most productive farms are, the food produced was removed for residents of other parts of the country, and Ukrainians were left to starve. The widespread and horrible scale of the starvation led people to eat the dead, and 2,500 were convicted of cannibalism. The same writer says of Stalin, Stalin was a paranoid that ruthlessly clung to power in order to upset any budding power bases or alliances that might work against him, he went on a spree of executing, imprisoning, and firing many officials at many levels, especially the highest levels. It's interesting, when you survey the powers, that, the, the people and the, the countries that rose to power over the, the course of human history, and, and especially the people that were at the center of those power bases, the, the heads of those states, what you mostly find are people that began in lower or middle class uh, families that got a little bit of power, and then eventually they rose to rank, getting a little bit more power and more power and more power, and then it eventually turned into absolute power. And as Lord Acton famously put it, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what is also common that you'll notice in these countries and with these power bases is that nearly all of these tyrants were paranoid. Almost all of them were fearful that someone might rise up and take control of their throne. Well, this world has a lot of alluring characteristics to it, not least of which, probably most of all, is wealth and power. And I think all of us at times are susceptible to these kinds of charms. We get attracted to these kinds of things, sometimes in little scales, sometimes in big scales, but we're all attracted to these same kinds of things. In Matthew 2, we're going to see that the birth of 
Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, has far-reaching ramifications. And the effects of Jesus coming into the world shakes everyone down to the core, from the highest levels of the Roman government all the way down to the hearts of every man and woman and child. This Savior is not simply a king. He is the king, and he's sent to turn the world and its establishment upside down. Let's read our text this morning, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we're in the introductory stages of the Gospel of Matthew. And in the first three and a half chapters, he's really introducing us to this character called Jesus Christ, this person called Jesus Christ, telling us who he is, giving us some expectations of what we're going to see. He's introducing his entire book. And then in the middle of chapter 4, Jesus will begin his ministry in which he will, Matthew will show us Jesus, who is introducing all of the people around him through his teaching to this kingdom that he is bringing to them. But here we are in the very beginning of Matthew, just being introduced to this person, Jesus. We're discovering who he is, and and Matthew's making some very strong claims about him. What you'll notice about this book as Matthew gets further into the story is that it's politically charged. Matthew's intent on showing us throughout this book that Jesus is a real king. And as we read about this king... And that, he, that he's inviting people to join into his kingdom. As we see this happen before us, what we're going to see is that this kingdom is totally different than the kingdom that we live in right now in the domain of darkness. We just came out of Colossians where we talked about where Paul had shown us that we are transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a gift that's been granted to us if we are a follower of Christ. Our citizenship has literally been transferred over to a new kingdom. 
And now we're in the Gospel of Matthew as we're being introduced to this king of this kingdom that we now live in. This is sort of like a prequel to Colossians. And what's clear is that these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, have totally different agendas, have totally different citizens, and radically different values. It becomes apparent as we read this Gospel. We saw previously in chapter 1 where this central figure in this gospel, Jesus Christ, is declared to us as king. He is heir apparent to the throne of David. And then not only is he heir apparent to the throne of David, he's also the Savior, the Messiah that we are looking for. So in chapter 1, right out of the gate, we have the new David, Jesus, and Emmanuel, God with us. Now, as we move into chapter 2, what we're really getting here is into the territory that we're really a lot more familiar with, probably most of us. It's all connected to this Christmas story. Probably a lot of us have sat around the Christmas tree reading the text of Matthew chapter 2 or Luke chapter 2 and hearing this Christmas story read. And so many of us connect this story directly to the Christmas narrative and to this particular time in our calendar year. And that's not altogether bad. Obviously, it is the incarnation of the Christ that we're looking at here. But if we could, just for a moment, disconnect this story from strictly a certain time of the year to really looking at, with fresh eyes, what Matthew is doing in this gospel as a whole and what he's claiming about this child that is sitting before us. If we summed it up, chapter 1 would be Jesus is King and He is Messiah. But chapter 2 gives us a look as to what kind of rule we should expect this king to have. What does it mean that he is king? What does it mean for us that he is king? There's a few observations I want us to make about Jesus' rule as we go through this passage. If you look at the text, the opening line in chapter 2 is, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So what do we have here right from the beginning of chapter 2? Two kings. We have two kings. Something we need to understand about history that gives weight to this passage that we're reading is here is this man called Herod. Later he'll be called Herod the Great. History will know him as Herod the Great. Now, he is not Jewish by birth. In fact, he is Idumean, meaning he is a, a, prod, a, a son of the Edomites. Anybody that knows their biblical history will know that he is a son of Esau, sitting on a throne as king of Israel, who was Esau's brother, Jacob. So he is sitting on the throne, a son of Esau, as king over Israel. Not only that, but in 40 BC, the Roman Senate, this is about 35 years or so before Jesus is born, the Roman Senate gives to Herod the Great, the title, King of the Jews. Now, knowing that, when you read this story, there's a little bit of irony present in this story. Here is the King of the Jews hearing about 
someone born king of the Jews. There's two really important elements that I want you to see in this passage. First, here is Herod, this Edomian, on the throne of the Jews, this Edomite. And here are these Gentiles coming from the east asking about this king of the Jews that has been born. The first thing that I want you to see here is what it doesn't say. They don't ask about the crown prince. They're coming to the palace of the so-called king of the Jews, and they're not asking about the crown prince that has been born. They're asking about him who has been born king of the Jews. Not born to be king of the Jews, born king. In other words, this is a title that has been conferred on him immediately in his birth. As a little baby, he is born king. Now, we don't really know a whole lot about these men that have come. Here they're called magi, or, or very technically magi, all right? But in English, it's the soft G, so we say magi. This, this word is used several times in Scripture, in Daniel, in Acts, and really what we know about that term is just, it means sorcerer or magician, loosely. So we, we don't know much at all about them. You will hear some pastors confidently say in the pulpit, these are Persian kingmakers, for sure. You will hear other pastors in the pulpit call them Babylonian astronomers, just as confidently. <laughs> Maybe both are wrong, at least one of them are, but, but can I tell you something about this? I don't think it matters because I don't think Matthew's point is for us to really care about their title. This story isn't told to us in order to tell us how Jesus got the title King of the Jews. That's what a lot of people point to when they say he's a, they're Persian kingmakers. They come to crown him king. That's clearly not what Matthew is talking about. They're asking about one who has been born already king of the Jews. They're not coming to make him king. They're coming to point at or recognize what is already true of this baby. He is king. But then look at the rest of verse 2. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So even, uh, even though he is king of the Jews, here are some Gentiles who have come from the east, and they're coming to worship this Messiah. The one who has been born. These are Gentiles from a faraway land who have clearly studied the charts and they have seen his star rise. They've seen the star of the Messiah rise. And we don't know what kind of star it was exactly. There are plenty of ideas as to about the time of year this was and the various uh, astronomical things that would be going on at the time. And there are probably a whole bunch of people in here that have probably seen documentaries or read books that confidently assert this is precisely what they're looking at. That's fine. Settle it in your mind what you think this event was. But can I tell you something? I don't think it's the nature of the star that is of Matthew's chief concern. If it was, he would probably give us a lot more information than what we got here. I don't think that's his chief concern. It's the nature of the child they're looking for that is his chief concern. That's the concern that's on Matthew's mind here. What kind of king is this? But think about this for a second. 
This Christ child has been born not that long before these wise men come. And do you realize what even their knowledge of this Messiah means that God is doing? His son has been born and he cannot keep it quiet. His aim is to tell everybody far and wide that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has been born. We're told about these men. In Luke, as we'll see tonight, we're told about the shepherds. We're told about a legion of angels singing praise to God for the fact that this child has been, has been born. Think about what's involved in all of that. Think about what's involved in God telling the Magi about the birth of His Son. He's obviously built into their culture an appreciation for astronomy. He had to give them some familiarity with other religions. It's the reason a lot of people think they're either Babylonian or Persian, is because of the close connection with Judaism. But, but they had to have known other religions, particularly Judaism. And billions of other things that we're not even told about or we can't even think about were in the works so that he could tell the world, this, your Savior has come. Your Savior is here. The very appearance of the Magi on the scene is evidence of the fact that God didn't want this to occur in some dark corner somewhere. His aim was to tell the entire world. He even tells the Gentiles. And Matthew is cluing us into something here. That this is going to be a very prominent thing for everybody in the world. People are going to submit to this king, not merely as king of the Jews, but even in the farthest reaches of the world, people are going to bend their knee to this king. In him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this Christ child. So we're not talking about just any king. We're talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so one thing that it makes very clear is that Jesus' rule is made available to everyone. Jesus' rule is made available to everyone. We have come to worship Him, they say. Now what's commonly known about Herod, especially as he moved on later in his reign, is like many of the dictators that have come since him and were before him, he got paranoid. And as we'll see next week in the following passage, he even goes to great lengths to protect his throne from a potential threat. But he's not at all comforted by this news from the Magi that they confer on him this title, King of the Jews. He's, that, that doesn't bring him comfort at all, right? He is a little bit paranoid that this guy might be coming for his throne. Let's look here in verse 3. When Herod the king, now that's the second time Matthew has called Herod the king, so it's clear he's setting up two opposing kingships, the king of the Jews and the king of the Jews. All right. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now the word Troubled there is the same thing that the disciples feel whenever they are on the sea and Jesus comes walking to them on the sea. It's, it's not just concerned or provoked to thought. This is terrified, right? This is frightened. 
Now, this makes sense for Herod. Here is one who has been born king of the Jews. Here's some Gentiles coming from a faraway land and saying, we've heard about somebody born king of the Jews. Where is he? Naturally, Herod's going to feel a little bit of a threat. The curiosity, though, is why is Jerusalem upset with him? Right along with him, Jerusalem is also concerned, terrified, frightened. Now, this is the Messiah the Jews have been looking for. If the news of this Messiah had come to you and you had been looking for him for this long, you would think the Jews would be over the moon excited about the news that's now come to them, that your Messiah has been born. He's come. He's here to save you. For them, probably what they're thinking is political freedom from Rome, much less their, their savior of their sins. You would think they would be really excited about the birth of the Messiah. But they're not. They're troubled. Now, there could be a perfectly logical explanation. It's very simple. makes complete sense. And it's probably right to some degree. If Herod's not happy, nobody's happy. Right? Here's a paranoid power freak that is totally upset. And who knows what he's going to do? He's in a volatile position. So naturally, we're going to be a little bit, of afra- a little bit afraid. Or, it might mean that they're so addicted to power that they rely so heavily on Herod and his authority, his kindness to them. They're so used to sharing in the benefits of his reign that they fear what it might mean for their political status if Herod sees them as a threat instead of an ally. It might mean that. But may I suggest something? Just by sheer fact of that Matthew doesn't tell us what that means, and he leaves it ambiguous like this, probably wants to make us, the reader, ask that question. What is causing their fear here? Either way, the Gentiles are coming to worship the real king, and the Jews are more concerned with the current king. So Herod is scared, and he sees king of the Jews, this king of the Jews, as a threat to his throne. But have you ever thought, why on earth would the earthly powers see Christ's citizens, his kingdom, as a threat? Think about that for just a second. Let me me explain what I mean. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. And anybody that would call themselves a follower of Christ is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We're followers of Jesus. And as such, we're really model citizens. We pursue peace whenever possible. Respectful of those in authority. We try to add to the, the benefit of people around us, to their goodwill of people around us. We try to to benefit society through charitable organizations, through good works, through acts of kindness, things like this. I mean, effectively, Christianity is the faith that you would want to pursue to be a model citizen, right? I mean, that's what you are as a Christian. You're, You're really a model citizen. Why on earth would that be a threat to earthly power? It's very simple. 
Because our allegiance is to Christ alone. Our allegiance is not to the state. And that precisely is the problem. That our allegiance is not to the state. It's to Christ alone. I submit to the state out of submission to Christ. Jesus even tells Pilate this when he's on trial. Pilate says, are you in fact the king of the Jews? Is that really who you are? And he says, you've said so. But my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, all of my followers would be attacking right now. They would whip out their swords and they would be fighting for this kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. The forces at work, the spiritual powers at work in this present darkness do not simply want my compliance. They want my wholehearted approval and allegiance. Make no mistake about it. That's what society around us wants. They want our allegiance. And if we refuse to give it to them, then we are a threat if there's something we are more aligned to than them. But this is good news for us. Because Christ is victorious and has purchased for us forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That means for us that this world is not our home. We are exiles in a far country. Our citizenship does not belong here, it belongs in heaven. And we are exiles. But I often ask myself, or I have to ask myself, do I communicate to the world that my hope is here? Do I communicate to the world that this is what I depend on, that this is really what I trust in? Do I communicate to my neighbors that I am a person whose citizenship is in heaven, not here? Do I communicate to my neighbors that I am the citizen of a kingdom that has already won the war? Or do they see a man whose mood changes with the headlines? Do they see a man who will do anything to preserve his own life and his own comfort? A man who wants nothing more than to live in the lap of luxury. Is that what they see when they look at me? Or do they see an exile living not for his own glory, but for the glory of another? What about you? Are your feelings of hope or despair tied up in what goes on in Washington? Does your mood change with the wind of political change, of the political climate? See, there's a problem there. Because when we swear allegiance to Christ, what that means is that we place our trust in him. We place our complete and total trust in Christ. He is our king, and I trust him wherever he leads me. That, that means a lot more than simply showing up to church on Sunday. That doesn't necessarily communicate your allegiance to Christ just by virtue of the fact that you showed up here this morning. It speaks to a lot more than that. Where is your trust if we show up every single Sunday and Wednesday, but all throughout the week, our mood goes up and down based on the current events that are around us, we have to ask ourselves, who am I trusting in? 
Sometimes we look at the news and we think, Washington has betrayed us. And why would they have betrayed us? Because we put our trust in them. You cheated on me. You didn't do what you were supposed to. We have to ask ourselves, in whom am I trusting? Sometimes I know I get frightened right along with Herod. It's sinful. So Herod here has no idea of where this king of the Jews is supposed to be born. And so he asks the leaders there, where is this town that he's supposed to be born in? And they give him the right answer, and they give him a combination of two passages from Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. Look there in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, 5 and 6, he says, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So the first part of this passage, the first part of verse 6, is a quote from Micah 5.2, where the ruler is coming from Bethlehem, which is the city that David was, is from. And the second part of the passage in, in verse 6 is from 2 Samuel 5.2, and the text there is David being anointed as king over Israel. They combine the two, and they get where he's, he's from and what his purpose is. So if you're, if you're reading this, having never heard of this Jesus, let's say you're reading this for the first time, Matthew is proving from the mouths of the Pharisees that this Jesus, just like David, is coming from Bethlehem and he is appointed as king and he is shepherd over Israel. So Jesus is effectively the new and better David. He is the new and perfect David who will shepherd all of God's people But once Herod's discovered some more information about this political opponent, this threat to his his kingship, his aim is to take him out, right? Just like all the paranoid people in the past, power freaks in the past, his aim is also to take him out. But of course, it's under the guise of worship. He lies to them. But it's, it's proof of the second thing that we should see about this, that Jesus' rule is a threat to earthly powers. We talked about last week how this manger scene looks very innocent. You see, even as the example I brought up last week, Fisher-Price sells the nativity set, but they'll never sell the crucifixion set, the resurrection set. They'll never sell that. Because everybody looks at this baby in a manger as an innocent little thing that happened in the corner somewhere. That everybody once a year comes around to celebrate. That's clearly not how they saw it then. That's clearly not what Herod's thinking. Oh, how cute. This little baby in a manger. There's no room for him in the inn. How sweet. That is not Herod's thought process. Herod actually really does understand what is going on here. This baby is a threat to all earthly powers. In the last few verses here, the the Magi give us a picture of what worship of this king really looks like. So first notice that they're searching for this place and the star finally settles over the place where the child was there in verse 9. And so now they finally approach the house. And as I said before, the, the nature of this star settling over the house is not really of chief concern to Matthew. 
whether it was an astronomical phenomenon or whether it was an angel that was a guiding light to them, it doesn't necessarily really matter. They are now directed to the house where this King of Kings and Lord of Lords is. And how do they react when they reach him? It says right there, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Folks, these are Gentiles demonstrating for every single person that reads this book how we should understand this Jesus. How are we to interpret what's happening in front of us? By the end of this book, he will be given his coronation service. He will be given a purple robe. He will be given a crown. He will be high and lifted up for all to see. And while the world stands around and mocks him, little do they realize this is exactly the kind of crown and the kind of throne that he came to take. They are giving him as proper king what he wanted to have from the beginning. And in so doing, he will die for the sins of his people. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, young and old, will be able then to rejoice exceedingly with great joy because we realize what this means. That Jesus coming means that God has put the hostile powers on notice. No longer will they hold my people captive. No longer can you threaten them with their life. No longer can you persuade them to pursue darkness because these are my people. Brothers and sisters, how else could we worship this Christ child but exceedingly with great joy? How else could we do this? But what is our countenance in worship? What does our face look like in worship? How do we respond to this wonderful gift of salvation that has been presented to us right here in this text? What are we looking for when we come to church? It's easy to get caught up in who is behind the pulpit. How slick that person is. How smooth they talk. How engaging they are. It's easy to get caught up in that kind of thought process about worship. It's easy to get caught up into who leads the songs. What kinds of songs that we sing. I like this kind of song. Well, I like that kind of song. It's easy to get caught up in all of that. It's, it's possible even to get caught up in lights and sound, and it just doesn't feel right in there. Or maybe I really like the way it feels in there. It's easy to take all of these things and bind them up in the term worship. But let's not forget, first and foremost, worship is about Jesus Christ. Exclusively. It's about Christ. How do you receive this news of salvation today? Is it old news? We get to those points in the sermon where we talk about the gospel message and how we're actually saved of what, because of what Jesus has done. Does that become old news for us? Do we get to the point where we're like, well, that's not for me. I already got baptized years ago. That's, that's uh, shut my Bible, stuff my notes in there. Start packing up, get ready to go, because this is, we know, the end of the sermon. Is it old news? Or am I receiving it 
exceedingly with great joy as if it's the first time that I've heard it. So they go into the house in verse 11. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now this isn't bribery, this is ascription. They are talking about what kind of king this is, and they're giving him gifts that demonstrate the value that they're placing on his kingship. They're bowing down to show that even though he's much younger than them, they are his humble servants. This is the heart of what we do when we worship God rightly. We're singing praises to His name because He is God. Not merely for the gifts that He gives to us, but because He is worthy of it. He is creator of the universe. He has made us from the dust of the earth. He hung the stars in the sky and every breath of wind is at His command. He is beautiful and majestic. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we worship Him if for no other reason than because He is worth it. The Bible is not simply good moralistic lessons. I'm amazed at how many people think this about Scripture. That it's basically just a book of good morals. That we read it, we hear somebody talk about it, we walk away, and now we know how better to live. See, we're exhorted in the Scriptures. We're told how to respond. We're told how to be, what ways to act. But it's not simply in a vacuum. We respond this way because of who Christ is. We are reminded who Christ is, and therefore we respond this way. It's not just a book of good moralistic lessons. We are reminded of who He is, and our soul is reminded to trust Him, and Him alone for salvation, rather than this cheap imitation that the world keeps peddling as hope. It changes every single week. We hope for this this week. Well, if we get that, then we hope for something else. Because in the end, it's not final hope. What we're looking for in Christ is final hope. Not only for salvation, but for a righteous judge to bring justice to the world. In the end, everyone is going to recognize this fact. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every single tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God of the Father. Some will do that out of contempt and some will do that in joy. But everyone is going to do it because he is worthy. Then the Magi do something very interesting here in verse 12. Look with me. He says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You see what they do? They obey the Lord's voice rather than the voice of man. I think about what that means for them. You know what they would have gained by listening to Herod? By going back and just reporting all that they had seen, where the Messiah is? Telling him everything he wanted to find out? They would have probably been given a, a seat at his table. They would have probably been rewarded handsomely for their service. For doing what he had asked them to do. But this is precisely why citizens of God's kingdom are a threat to the established order because their allegiance is to Christ and not to man. When we have a choice to make between obeying God and obeying man, we choose to obey God and face the consequences for not obeying man. And that's exactly what they do here. 
You see, Jesus' rule demands our worship. We have to see that in this text, that Jesus' rule demands our worship. But you see, you don't have to be like Stalin or Hitler or even Herod. You don't have to kill 60 million people to reject Christ as king. You can simply refuse to submit to his authority in everyday life. That's it. Just refuse to submit to his authority in everyday life. Follow instead after the things of this world. That's all it takes to reject him as king. And we might have missed something a while back. I think we probably did. And I'm not sure exactly at what point we missed it, but at some point we missed it. And we began to confuse the real purpose of coming to church. Rightly understood, we're here to worship the creator of the world, the savior of mankind, to sing praises to who he is because of who he is, then to hear from his word what he's actually saying to us. And that gives us a resolve to endure all the way to the end. That's the purpose of what we do on Sunday morning. And then we come together to encourage one another, to lift one another up so that we can ensure that we make it to the end. We come to warn each other about sins that we fall into because that's not following Christ. And encourage them to come back under the ruling reign of Christ. That's really what we're doing on Sunday morning or in the life of this church. That's it. When you put it in terms like that, it's really pretty simple. When you look at it like that. But at some point that changed to being about us. We came up with the phrase church shopping because you're the consumer. We're the church and we put out a product and you come in to either buy it or go down the street and buy it from the church down the street because you like the way they sell it better. And we use phrases like, uh, is it, it's just not engaging, it's not for me. I can really connect with the worship that they do down there. I can, really, I can really worship there. That, there's too much theology in, in what he's saying. It, it just doesn't connect with me very well. They sing older songs, and I just don't really like it. Or those songs are too new. I, that, that can't be right. And we've heard all these things before, and we've probably even said them ourselves. But there's several reasons why that's a really bad way to think about church. I'm going to give you two. The first is it's dependent on religious freedom. People in the persecuted world don't think about church this way. I preached in a church in China, a house church in China. We sat in chairs in a small circle. There were no instruments. Do you know why? They didn't want to give away their position to the government had to sing pretty quietly in a small circle. Our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries don't have the luxury of looking at churches in this way. They go to the church out of dependence, not on comfort. They go to church out of respect for the God that they're serving and the people that they're there to worship with 
They're more interested in the God that is being worshipped than anything else. The quality of music has nothing to do with the quality of worship that goes on in a church. When and if persecution does rise in this country, what we're going to see is many driven away from the church like chaff before the wind because the comfort that they're looking for no longer exists in the church. The question that we're all asking right now is, how many will it be? Is this your thought of what church is? That I'm really com- coming to be engaged. I'm really co- That's the fancy Christian word that we use for entertained. <laughs> we call it engaged because it makes us feel a little bit better, but that's really what we're talking about. Second reason why that's a bad way to think about church is it's antithetical to the worship that we actually see happening in the Bible. The word worship in the New Testament, the image that's conveyed by that word is to prostrate oneself and kiss the feet of the one that is before them. That's the image that's conveyed in the term worship. To prostrate oneself, to bow oneself down and kiss the feet of the one that is before them. And in this passage, we see the wise men coming from afar and bowing down before this Christ child. And they walk away and it rightly says that they worshipped Christ. They honored and revered Him as Lord. There are no pianos. There are no guitars. There are no angels playing the harp as they walk in. They don't say, you know, I really connect with the music that was going on there. It was the position of their heart before this Christ child. I'm not making the argument that these these pagans or these these Gentiles are, are Christians. We don't know. We're not told. Matthew leaves that to the imagination. But what we do see here is that these people recognize him as king and bow before him as the true king of the universe. See, the potency of Christ's church is felt in its worship. That's where it is strongest. And if on Sunday we come here looking for entertainment, we'll be weak as water when persecutors rise up in this country. And we'll rightly be driven away. But when we come together as these men did, and fall down before our Savior and kiss the feet of our King, the one who saved us will be an unquenchable fire that no amount of persecution can extinguish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause for a moment to just recognize that you are king of the world, of the universe. Whatever exists in this world, things we may not even be aware of, you're king of that too. Much further than what the light touches, you are king of that. I pray that that would just sink into our brains as we meditate on this Christ child being born in Bethlehem. That this won't be like any other Christmas that we've had before. But that we'll truly pause and think, this means something for me. 
Father, I pray that you would communicate that to us through your Holy Spirit. Let it always be an un, um, unquenchable fire in our bellies. That as we think about what you have done for us and who you are, we will respond in worship, bowing down before your feet, honoring you as king, revering you as Lord, praising you as Messiah, who has saved us from our sins. We are grateful for that. Gratitude doesn't even begin to express how we feel about it. Pray, Lord, that you would tie us together as a body, working as one cohesive unit under Christ as head. It's in his name we pray. Amen.